much for coming out on uh, this evening. Um, tonight we're doing Persian language and literature, which is um, Persian history just keeps going back and back and back and back. It never stops. It goes back. It's turtles all the way down. If you're familiar with the, the physics problem. Um, so I was trying to figure out where to start, and I, and I thought a great place to start would be with the New York Times in April of 2003. You may, you may have remembered that uh, we decided to invade Iraq and Afghanistan around that time, and the announcement on that day in the uh, paper was, one remaining objective is Kut, a town to the southeast of Baghdad and a former hotbed of resistance. There have been reports in recent days that several hundred paramilitary troops were holed up in the town. But, but local leaders say that the paramilitary units are no longer in the city and they are willing to allow American Marines into it. American military officials are working to clarify the status of the city. In any case, it seems likely to be under American control soon. That would mean virtually all of Iraqi cities would be out of control of Mr. Hussein or his major subordinates. With this announcement, America became roughly the 1,000th country to invade the homeland of Persia. And exactly what happened to us is exactly what has happened to every other outside force that has invaded this region since time, literally immemorial. It just goes on and on. If you listen to the commentators of, of the history of, of Persia, the Middle East, at the time of American war plans were being drawn up and our invasion ideas, they, they, they were more or less unanimous in saying, well, this was historically a very bad idea. Not necessarily the invasion, which is fine. Many people have successfully invaded the region. But the vagueness of our ideas of what was going to happen next uh, boded ill for our future in the region. And of course, events proved them to be correct. So I want you to set your minds way back in the distant past, the blowing sands there, the Middle East. And a prophet comes from the desert. And he has seen a vision. He has seen a vision of the one true God. And the one true God has told him, you must not sin, you must be righteous, you must pray to God and ask for his guidance. You must avoid evil in the world and the doers of evil and the demons who prompt you to evil and you'll be, receive help from angels. You will look forward to an afterlife where you'll be reunited with your God in faith and the voice of the prophet is true and you must follow his writings. Of course, we know the name of this prophet, Zarathustra. <laughs> These are the teachings of the prophet Zarathustra, who founded Zoroastrianism. Sometime, it is not clear, it is very hard to get these exact dates, but sometime around 1500 BC. That is 1500 BC. This goes way back. This goes back almost to the origins of writing. And this prophet rises up and says this polytheism, all of these idols you worship are wrong. They must be cast down. You must follow the true God, Ahur Mazda, who will show you the right way. And you must avoid sin and the challenges of Araman, who is the devil that tempts you to do evil. And man is here on earth to choose between good and evil, righteousness or wrong living, with eternal salvation as your reward. 
All of this was a revolution in religious thought. Prior to that time, polytheism was the order of the day, animism, in fact. To have such an abstract sort of god off in the distance was, was, was very rare, uh, if not unique at the time. Um, and it took a while to catch on, but catch on it did. And it spread its influence. In fact, you may recognize some of the forms of the influence um, up until, obviously, the present day. And so we can pick up Persian history and the birth of the Persian uh, language a thousand years later, by the way. It's not for a thousand years later that we have good scriptural evidence of the first Zoroastrian state religion, which is in the Achaemenid dynasty that we'll begin to discuss. But even by the time we have good written evidence for it, we have other evidence that demonstrates that Zarathustra, if such a person did live, and there's some reason to suspect that he did, predated that a thousand years. Like I said, this, this history just keeps going back and back. But we'll, we'll fast forward to the Achaemenian dynasty. This one you may know if you look at the, the timeline there, because this is Cyrus the Great, Darius, and Xerxes. By the way, these are the only names you need to know, because they just they said it was Cyrus, and then Darius, and then Xerxes, and then Artaxerxes, and then Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes, and Darius, and then Darius, and Artaxerxes, and then Darius, and then Artaxerxes, and then Darius. And then finally, when they got to Darius the third, the Greeks came in and killed them. So that sort of put the end of the two names that they allowed their rulers to have. Uh, but there's a whole list of them there. Actually, a few more than that. I, I exaggerate. Uh, but this is in, in so 559 to 330 BCE. You got the Achaemenian dynasty, vast, huge dynasty, the largest dynasty uh, in the ancient world, um, with the potential exception of depending on how you score China at the time. But in any case, really big, uh, extravagantly wealthy, and this is the cuneiform writing. Where we left off in the cuneiform lecture was the appearance of Old Persian in cuneiform. This is where we're picking up from today. It's during the Achaemenian dynasty that you get Old Persian, which is a very direct, close descendant of modern Persian. Um, in specifically the area that is today known as Iran, where they still speak Persian. Uh, so this is a 2,500 year run of speaking closely allied dialects of the same language only matched by China. It's the only other country in the world that has this clear, contiguous run of linguistic sort of heritage. Uh, another way to think about it is 2,500 years ago, imagine that the Native Americans were speaking some form of English. Right? No, they, they weren't. There was not even a form of English 2,500 years ago, much less speakers of it, much less speakers of it here. So when America invades something like the uh, Middle East, Baghdad, the area of the ancient Persian empires, we're stepping not into a history that's 100 or 200 or 500 years old. We're, we're stepping into a history that's been contiguous for several thousand years. Uh, generally, we ignore this. Generally, that doesn't work out very well. So this is when we begin to get the first inscriptions in stone and some cuneiform tablets of Old Persian. It was either the most widely written or second most widely written language. It's hard to judge at this distance. Uh, but it was a common court language, which continues to be until today, uh, influential throughout the region of, of what we know today as Baghdad, uh, Iraq and Iran primarily, and then anywhere that the uh, administrators of the Achaemenian dynasties went, which was a lot of places. 
you would find Persian in official court documents. Um, and then about 332 BC, well, about roughly exactly, Alexander the Great crossed the Helen spot and begins uh, the wars um, that destroy or conquer the Persian Empire. Of course, I should mention, by the way, Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, these are the guys that we get from the Greek historians. Of course, if you read the Persian historians, they have a slightly different version of how this works out than the Greek historians do. But the, the bad guys in Greek history, of course, are the Persians, specifically uh, Darius and Xerxes. These are, these are the bad guys who keep invading and they fight and they sack Athens and these are the people they fought at Thermopylae. Um, again, if you read the Persian histories, they have a slightly different view on it. Um, not surprising, the person we call Alexander the Great Nah, not, they don't think of him as being so great, right? <laughs> Alexander the plunderer, Alexander the guy who messed our country up. Um, and he, he, he crosses and he destroys the then capital, a beautiful city. You can still see the ruins, amazing ruins. Um, what is this now going on? 2,300, 2,400 years later of Persepolis. Uh, was called the, the city of a hundred towers. And this may have not been an exaggeration if you look what's still standing today. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Alexander burned the library of Persepolis. So we have very few written documents from this period because the Persian administrators had transferred to using various kinds of fabrics and, and leathers and other materials for keeping records rather than stone and, and cuneiform, which is very heavy, but also much more prone to disappearing in fires. Uh, and so with the destruction of the library of Persepolis, we lost much of the written material that we otherwise would have had from this period of Persian history. Um, again, so when people talk about the you know, horrible barbarians destroying the library of Alexander and much of our Greek culture, well, ha ha ha, right? <laughs> it's a blowback for our people because you know, Alexander's over here burning our library. So it was a lot of library burning going on in the ancient world and it certainly wasn't the province of any single group of people to do this. Um, so Alexander crosses over and begins a pattern that we will see repeatedly. Uh, he conquers Persia. Well, what does it mean to conquer Persia? Well, what his commanders noticed was that all of a sudden he started wearing Persian clothing. And he started acquiring the manners of a Persian overlord. And as he marched east, he became more and more like a sort of Persian ruler, a Shah, a great man of the, of the Persian uh, civilization. He dropped his Greek ways, became haughty. He dressed, again, most notably, the Persians were very big on clothing. He dressed like a Persian. And this upset his lead generals. We have written documents of this time. They got real nervous. Are you the Alexander, the leader of Greek civilization, or are you Alexander, the increasingly Persian despot? Who's winning this battle, right? This is, it, which way this go? It, it, it's tricky to know. But remember, there were very few Greeks who invaded Persia and a lot of Persians. So if you conquer Persepolis and burn it to the ground, well, that's nice, maybe. Uh, but there's still several hundred thousand Persians there and you might have you know, 10 or 15,000 Greeks. And so you're going to need some help administering this huge country that you've conquered. And that help is going to be in the form of the Persian viziers. And they're happy to help you out because what else do they have to do for a job? But what language do they write? Well, they write Persian. What kind of ideas do they have? They have Persian ideas. And so 
Before too long, you get the Seleucid dynasty, which is founded by one of Alexander's generals, and really looks like a few Greek guys dressed up as Persians, uh, running a former Persian empire more or less indistinguishable from the way it would have been run if the Persians were still in charge. This is an extraordinary turn of events, happening very rapidly, but it is perfectly understandable. Um, then you get this sort of, by the way, my original time outline that I wrote up turned out to be 10 pages long. So, I, I, you know, sort of, so I'll have these lacunae where you say, well, lots of things happen. Uh, so, you know, there's all this Seleucid dynasty fighting it back and forth. And you get the rise of the Parthian dynasty, some of whom spoke versions of Persian, some of whom did not. The Parthians are the Pathons or the Pashtuns, uh, a very difficult group of people, history suggests. The uh, Seleucids did not like them. The Persians did not like them on again, off again. The Romans did not like them. The Arab, no one's has liked them. We don't like them today. We're still fighting them. Uh, which is, of course, exactly what history suggested would happen. Uh, so the Parthians sort of organize themselves, and they rise up. Um, and with their help, the Sasanian dynasty gets started, which becomes Middle Persian. Now, the Sasanian dynasty becomes... I think at that time, the largest empire ever. It, it, it is vast, vast in the extent that it was able to reconquer and control. And one of the things historians wondered for a while was, why was this? Um, and it turns out the reason they were able to do this so quickly and so efficiently is because much of the infrastructure that was there was still essentially a Persian bureaucracy. Many of them still spoke Persian or its allied language. The forms were Persian. Even if there was a Parthian general or if there was a, a, a Greek general or some other despot in, in control, the infrastructure, the organization was still very much along the Persian lines that would be perfectly recognizable to Darius. Darius, if he could have come forward 700 years of history, would have looked around and said, oh, I know how this works. This is the way we ran it when I was here. It says, amazing continuity. Again, because of the uh, conflict, besides stone engravings um, and, and uh, some tablets and a limited amount of writing, we have very limited material from this period of time, um, which is the Middle Persian period. Uh, but this goes on, as you can see, from roughly 200 to roughly uh, 7th century, so 637. So that's a good 400-year run. And... So if you look, you had about 200, 250 years with the Achaemenian dynasty, which really continues to pretty significantly under the Seleucids, a couple of periods of unrest, and then you get another period of roughly 400 years of continuous Persian rule. So that's a thousand year run with some interregnums of, of civil war and strife. And so this laid very deep cultural foundations of Persian identity, of the notion of, of geopolitical continuity, of how your government should work, how it should be run. But the Sasanians also were strongly uh, Zoroastrian in their outlook. It became, Zoroastrianism became the state religion. Uh, it had been probably the straight religion under the Achaemenians. The texts that we have are, are unclear about this. It was at least a significant religion, but probably a state religion under the Achaemenians. But in the Sasanians, it was absolutely a state religion. This is, this is what it meant to be. Uh, a Persian at this time, it meant to be Zoroastrian. Or you paid a tax. 
Um, if you wanted to be a Christian or a Jew, that was fine-ish, um, but then you just had to pay for it. Um, we're going to try to do a little extra on the side uh, to, if you're going to practice your religion within our Zoroastrian confines. And there are other ones, Mithrites and, and Mazdaites and, and other forms of this. So at this point, the, the Sasanian dynasty looks virtually unstoppable. It's one of these empires that said, well, you know, we're it, we've done, we're finished. Which, you know, no one is greater than us, we've conquered all the world, no one can test us, we're the greatest people ever in history, which history shows time and again, as soon as you say that, bad things happen to you. You should just never say that, because then bad things happen. Uh, and of course, you know the bad thing that's coming on the Sasanian dynasty at this time is, is the Islamic conquest. One of the most remarkable events in the history of the world was the unbelievably rapid. If you think that, the, the, that Muhammad is preaching in 620 and 630, and by 650 they've conquered pretty much all of what used to be the Sasanian dynasty, Sasanian empire. It would be something as if, like I was trying to think of an equivalent, it would be as if um, a priest of Bob Marley rose up in Jamaica today and in 30 years had conquered all of North America, Central America, most of South America, and good chunks of Europe. Jamaica. We're just like, there's no possible way. This is impossible. This could not happen. You would be full of ganja. You'd be full of ganja, right? We could, we could this, this, this is inconceivable to us. In the ancient world, the Arabs and the Arabian Peninsula was viewed as sort of the furthest outback of the outback. They didn't have writing, they didn't have culture, they were just sort of these crazy people over there that no one really messed around with too much. They were not big on the map. Um, and then all of a sudden they flow in, and they overflow and they conquer again the Sasanian dynasty, the largest dynasty in the world at that time, or certainly in the region at that time, um, very rapidly. Was it military or religious conquest? Uh, yes. Primarily, good question, primarily, and this is important, military. This is why I started with America invading there. Again, same pattern. These are the Umayyads, by the way. The Umayyad dynasty comes rolling in. And they take all the capital cities. They kill many of the leading families. They defeat the militaries in battle on the field. And they set themselves up, ha-ha, we now rule the Persian Empire. Great. Good for you. Now what are you going to do with it? And it turns out, much as like happened when the people conquered China, they didn't know what to do with it. They had no idea. And so the first thing they needed to do was to consult some people who had run a huge, vast empire before. And you know who happened to be handy to hand? A bunch of Persian viziers happened to be handy to hand. And they're like, well, you know, it's funny you should ask. We have had some experience in running empires of this size. I'm glad to help you out. No problem. We'll, we'll, we'll help you there. And so when they, when they roll in, Islam, new religion. Zoro, Zoroastrianism has now been established in this area for, you know, a thousand years going on. It's been around. It's been a state religion for several hundred. So Islam didn't just walk in and say, okay, you're all converted. Islam came in and said, we are Islamic. You are not. We're the bad people. All for us. You can't have any. And so this led to just sort of two things. Many of the, of the leading people said, well, we want to convert to your religion so that we can be on the inside. And there was very controversial, well, no, we don't want you to convert. Well, we do want to convert. 
Like, we don't want to let you to convert because then you don't have to pay taxes and you'll get a share of say in what's going on. But eventually they had to sort of give in because they needed these people to help them. And so they said, oh yes, we have converted. We've converted to your religion wholesale. So we're now going to suggest that you make a few changes to the way you do things. Have you ever considered praying five times a day as we do in Zoroastrianism? And they said, well... <laughs> would that help? Would that help us all from being killed and you guys rising up? Oh yes, absolutely. We would appreciate that very much. And we're happy to do that. And, and what if we prayed and we'll just put the fires out in your fire temples and put up, put, put up little things that say Muhammad is great on there. Allah is the, the one true God. Oh, that's fine. We're good with that. Okay, great. So we'll pray five times a day in your old temples with some new writing. In them. Yep, good. Everybody's converted. Isn't that great? Uh, and so many of the things that we take for granted today that come to us from Islam and are seen as key features of Islam are, in fact, direct borrowings, not sort of vague, but five times a day is Zoroastrian. The Quran tells you to pray three times a day. Uh, the Avesta, which is this holy book of Zoroastrianism, says five times a day. And it tells you to pray at precisely the times of day that the Muslims pray today because they got it from the Persian viziers who told them this would be a really good way to do things. And this, this goes on and on. So the Umayyads are based in Damascus for geo geographical reasons. This is sort of the Middle Near East. This is where these things are going on. And, and they're trying to run this vast empire with limited familiarity with this. They're very smart. They're very capable. But this doesn't last too long. Uh, and guess what happens next? The Abbasids, with helps from the Parthians, rise up, as usual, um, and they conquer the Umayyad dynasty, and they, and they systematically exterminate all of the family except for one who escapes to uh, Spain. Um, and they move the capital from Damascus to the Tigris and Euphrates. Of course, this is what you do. And they built a new city, Baghdad, which means more or less new city, uh, right next to what used to be Babylon. And this was a way of saying, we're moving back to where we've always been. We're reestablishing ourselves in the homeland of our people. And the homeland of our people for the last thousands of years at this point has been right here. And so your Islamic conquest has turned out to look a whole lot like the reestablishment of the Persian Empire. You know, fascinatingly, the capitals move back to where the capitals have always been. The forms of worship begin to look suspiciously like they always did before. It's not that Zoroastrian doesn't lose a lot of its authority, and a lot of the priests of the Zoroastrian tradition were very upset by this. A lot of fighting. It took, took more than a couple of centuries for, this, for Islam to really take hold. But by the time it had really taken hold, it had been magically transformed in many ways. Uh, in, in, to complete a program in Zoroastrianism that had been going on for a long time. So just to, to put the sort of um, exclamation point on this, we, we reach the period of classical Persian literature now, um, where we really have lots of great written texts, many of which you will be familiar. But, but you have to, to put this again in context, so now we're moving on towards the Ghazanid dynasty, Turkic speaking. The Abbasids don't fall, they just sort of become loosely federated. 
and local caliphates and stuff rise up and are much more powerful and wealthy. So it becomes less despotic and centralized control and, and more loosely confederated. And you get this amazing moment. So at this point, so we'll just go to Ferdowsi's uh, uh, right now. This is about 930. He's born 935. The Book of Books comes out roughly 1010. So that is nearly 400 years after Persia has been conquered by Islam. Ferdowsi brings out a book called the Shahnameh. It is the single most important work in Persian by far. It's sort of a combination Shakespeare, Bible, Iliad, and Odyssey. All rolled into one. He says at the end of the Shamanah, Shahnameh, excuse me, verse now I am done. I have written the book that will make me immortal. No one will forget it, and no one will forget Persian. This is what I have achieved in my greatness. I have built a tower that will never be overtaken by flood or rain or lightning. <coughs> one thousand years later, he turns out to be absolutely correct. But you have to put this in perspective. For 400 years, Persian had been theoretically under the thumb of Arabic Islam. And then Ferdowsi comes on and writes what is uh, long. It's longer than the Iliad and the Odyssey put together. I forget, it's 80,000 couplets, I think. It's a lot of couplets. It's an ode to the greatness of Persia. It's a complete history of the world. It begins with the first man, who turns out to be from a Zoroastrian tradition, um, and it goes all the way up until Persia is conquered by the Arabs and then stops. The first series is sort of this mythical origins of the world. The middle section is this sort of heroic age and it includes some references to actual uh, historic people like Alexander appears in there, but it's mostly sort of very much like the Iliad and the Odyssey, more like the Odyssey, a whole series of sequence of events. The last third of it, maybe a little more than the third, is the actual reign of the kings of Persia of the Sasanian dynasty. More or less in correct order, with lots of correct details. So it is part history, part fairy tale. But it's 100% a powerful reassertion of the centrality of Persian as a language. This is the language. This is the great literary language. How do you know? I've just proved it of the extremely non-Zoroastrian foundations, I mean non-Islamic foundations, the Zoroastrian foundations of that civilization. You can read a long time in there before you read anything that seems even remotely Islamic. With a claim to the future. This is not a book being written for now. This is a book because Persia is back. We're on the map. We never went away, but you might have forgotten us, but now we're back. We're asserting our cultural identity. It's an amazing feat. Again, this is, this is 400 years later. Again, it would be as if in 200 years, uh, a member of the Navajo Nation wrote up, rose and wrote a work that was so powerful and so great in the Navajo language that a thousand years after that, everybody in America spoke Navajo. Right? It, it, from the outside, you would look at this time in history and you would not think, oh, th 
this, there was going to be this huge uprising of Persian culture, but ah, it never went away. You can conquer, you can take the capital cities, you can put a flag up, you can put a new crown on the king, you can change outward forms, but underneath those cultural forms that again go back at least, at this point, 3,000 years, they don't change that fast. The structures just don't change. Um, and so this is, then we get to this great period. Again, the, the, you cannot, any literate Iranian today can quote whole passages of the Shahnameh at you. It is what it means to be literate in, in Persian. Um, it's also important because it has no Arabic words, or almost no Arabic words. Modern Iranian has a lot of Arabic words, maybe 30%. Persian, Parsi, what, you know, the, the Persian is, it's like Persian plus 30% Arab words. But when people want pure Persian, real Persian, you go to this text, because that is an encyclopedia of the Persian identity. It's, a, it's the Persian word for everything that you might not have learned the Persian word for because of the Arabic loan words that keep flowing in. It's an astonishing achievement. But you also, at the same time, you get the rise, and if you look on the back of all the poets that you may have noted, all the, all the, all the, the, the Rubiat of Omar, Kayam, Hafiz, all of these people are coming out at this time. Hakim Sinai. So I thought we'd just read a few of these just to get a sense of things. Oh, in the lower right-hand corner, there is a, a picture of that is actual Persian there, just so you can see that, and then the, the translation below from the Rubiat of Omar Kayam. So... Um, one of the big tensions, again, as I mentioned, and I'll keep mentioning, is, is between the Persian traditions and this Islamic overlay. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a further example of this in a second. So look at these Persian poets who are often associated with Sufism, which will become very important. Um, so this is Hakim from, from The Walled Garden of Truth, one of the great works. And if, my friend, you ask me the way, I'll tell you plainly, it is this, to turn your face towards the world of life and to turn your back on rank and reputation and, spurning outward prosperity, to bend your back double in his service and depart company with those who deal in words and take your place in the presence of the wordless. The way is not far from you to a friend. You yourself are that way. So set out along it. Um, it's important to note here that the word for road, path, or way in Arabic is Sharia. So when you hear Sharia law, this is specifically the way, the path, the right way. When someone says the right way is inside of you, law, the Sharia law is out there. This is this is a, a, this is not a, a mistake. This is not an accidental use of the notion of path or way. It was like a, it's, it's a direct refutation of that concept. There is no path or way out there. The path or way is inside. I reject your path, the Sharia, for my path. And they use the exact same word. It's, it's a very powerful grab to get that word back uh, that they feel had been taken from them. Hafiz. Uh, Hafiz is great because uh, he's just drunk. Uh, it's sunrise, wine boy. Pour my drink straight away, for the turning of the sphere brooks no delay. Ere our fleeting world has wasted away completely, get me completely wasted with the rosé. 
From the east of the wine bowl rose the wine's red sun. Want pleasure? Tell sleep to get out of your face today. <laughs> Don't sleep, drink. <laughs> Fill the chalice of my skull with age-sweet ferment. The day of firmament's wheel makes jugs of my clay. I'm no man for sophistry, cant, or hermetic babble. If the wine is crystal clear, then have your say. Hafiz, the worship of liquid spirits is proper. Get up then and vow to make it a proper day. <laughs> now remember, Islam outlaws drinking alcohol. Right? It is specifically prohibited. And, and so you, again, right? So, so you, the, the, I mean, it's, it's just consistent throughout uh, the poetry, this, this kind of thing. Omar Khayyam. As the rising Venus and move in the sky appears to the goodness of quality wine, nothing comes near. I'm amazed at the vendors of a liquid so dear. Where they'll buy a better thing is not clear. <laughs> Why would you sell it? What could you possibly do with the money? That would be better than drinking the wine. You guys are just dumb. This is, he's like, you know, this is wine. Jeez, get a clue. Uh, and then uh, last one here from Omar uh, Khayyam. Uh, and those who husbanded the golden grain and those who flung it to winds like rain alike to no such all right earth are turned as buried once men want to dig up again. Yeah. So this one, by the way, this is the Fitzgerald uh, uh, translation. I think Jack, who's out here, Jack O'Connor, gave me a great book that had several translations and commentaries on it. Um, and a beautiful French uh, version with all kinds of illustrations of these works. Uh, wonderful. Uh, what this means is, as the sun turns, as the heavens wheel overhead, we, we die and get turned into the earth. And then we're dug up again. Grain is planted in us. I have no idea why people grasp for property. And those who husbanded the golden grain, why? You die, you get turned in the soil, they plant grain in you and it grows up again. What are you holding on to it for? Don't bother. Again, this is a, this is a very, it's not a terribly Islamic principle. Let me put it to you that way. Um, uh, finally, uh, another truly significant, hugely work is, is uh, Farood Din Attar's The Conference of the Bird, The Parliament of the Fowls. You may have heard various versions of this. Um, just a, a passage, which there's hundreds of them here, but this is a passage from early on in the book, and it says, um, and this is a, a, a Islamic, he's a, he's, a, he's a mullah, hugely respected, he's been on the Hajj. And he has a vision, and he goes, you know what, I don't think I'm doing this right. And finally he says, um, they love without that savage agony which is reserved for vexed humanity. Islam and blasphemy have been both past. You've you got to get past this Islam thing. And blasphemy. Get past both of them. And in the story he goes on to get drunk, lust after a Christian woman, marry a Christian woman, and become a swineherd. <laughs> and when his followers go to track him down and say, what are you doing Mullah, you've gone, I mean, you've done, I mean, every possible thing that you could do wrong. This is not a mistake, right? It's like an alphabetic list of terrible things you can do. And he sends them away, and as they don't know, they're gnashing their hairs. They get a vision from God, essentially, who says, what's wrong with you? Don't you see? 
Follow his example. If you want to help him, follow his example. And they're like, I guess we have to become swine herds. Your way, the Sharia law, the way of the law, the way of the rules, is no way. This is an absolute, consistent, powerful message that you get from Sufi text after Sufi text after Sufi text. When you read the poems, much of them are Sufi influenced, not all of them. There's lots of beautiful love poetry. By the way, it is important to mention that much of the love poetry was written to young boys. Um, the trade in young boys in this, in this area today is still very strong, uh, but at this time in particular, you, you really fell in love with the, with the young boy who was bringing you the wine. Much of it is also for beautiful young women as well, but a lot of it is directed to young men. Um, it, it, it's consistent throughout. So when you talk about your lover and all this, it's, it's always good to check whom they're writing to. Um, uh, but, but this influence, it, it, hugely powerful. And so here you have this just rise of this incredibly beautiful, ornate Persian culture. At this point, it's given us the translation movement. This, this goes back to the original uh, um, Abbasid dynasty. Scholars have always wondered about why, why did all of a sudden the Arabs, who, by the way, were essentially had no written language before they set out on this conquest. Uh, in, in many important ways, the Quran is the first book ever written in Arabic. Um, why, a couple hundred years later, are they spending huge sums, millions of dollars, translating all the Greek works into languages like, oh, Persian um, and Arabic? That makes no sense. Why is Avicenna, all of a sudden this great Arab philosopher, truly great Arab philosopher, rising up in this world out of seeming nothing? Why does he write half of his works in Persian? These are given to us not they're a gift from the Persian civilization. They lavished huge sums, translations, literature, art, sculpture, cities. And again, it reflowers in the time of Ferdusi, right here. This is the age of classical Persian. And then, this is, this is all going very well, uh, until Genghis Khan shows up. Um... This is as close as Persian civilization has ever come to, to ceasing. The invasion of the Mongols was totally different from any other invasion the ancient world had seen. And everybody in the ancient world talked about this. Everybody else who invaded rolled into your city, cut off a bunch of heads. They may even burn a few cities down, but basically they wanted to take over what was there. We're here to rule your, your empire. We're here to take slaves and take your crops, take your gold, and to set up business. This is not what the Mongol horde was there for. The Mongols were there to destroy everything, and this is what they did. They would take a city, kill every single inhabitant, burn it down, and then, most importantly, destroy the aqueducts. They would destroy the irrigation canals. Canals that had been built literally over the preceding 3,000 years. This did not make it hard to farm. It didn't make it difficult for people to live. It made it impossible. There's whole sections of Iran today that have never been re-farmed. Agrarian life has never returned to them. If you've seen pictures of the Iranian oasis towns, right? You see the big desert with the oasis? 
Those deserts used to be fields for hundreds of miles. That waste was built by Genghis Khan and the Mongols. Because they weren't there to settle, they were there to conquer and move on, and that's what they did. Estimates vary, hard to get these things down. At least half of the population was killed, probably more like 75%. So, just a devastation completely unlike anything anybody was prepared for. And so the Mongols just rode across this area, killing everybody and destroying everything, and very nearly, very nearly, squeezing out the end of Persian civilization. But again, miraculously, everybody knows the Mongols reached all the way into India. This is the Mughal Empire. By the time they got there to rule whole sections of India, they spoke... Persian. Persian. They spoke Persian. Unbelievably. Unbelievably. They got even the Mongols they convinced to speak Persian by the time they got to India. So you have this crazy regime in India. The Mughals, not crazy, I mean just historically odd. Where the Mughals were Mongols who were Arabic that spoke Persian. They rolled right then so they said that was what the Mughal Empire was. And that was there until the British showed up, right? I mean, the Mughals were, were there negotiating with the British. An Arab empire, I mean, a, a Mongol empire of Arabic um, religious, uh, Islamic religious peoples who were speaking Persian, hugely influenced by the Persian viziers. And slowly through the Timurid period, they're able to rise. I mean, slowly. By the way, again, so slowly that still whole sections of Iran have never recovered from this. They've never returned to agriculture. Because the, 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 the uh, aqueducts and canals that were necessary to irrigate were so labor-intensive and took so long to build that they've never been reconstructed. I mean, it's that level of destruction. But slowly, under the Timurid Empire, um, and several other things roll, 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 roll through, they're able to rebuild their culture. They're able to convert the Mongol overlords, as we've heard, to, to, to Persian. The viziers move back in. The originally Buddhist, by the way, Mongols, um, we don't tend to think of them as being Buddhist, different kind of Buddhist, um, <laughs> you could say. They, the, the, the Mongols roll in. Um, by the time they leave, they are primarily converting to Islam, but again, of this very curious flavor of Islam that tends to look a heck of a lot like Zoroastrianism. In fact, by the time the Mongols have sort of moved on, the Zoroastrian temples begin to reappear. Um, not coincidentally. Um, Timurid Empire sort of settles down, puts some civilization back into it. The Mongols defeat themselves, by the way. People always wonder what happened to the Mongols. They defeated themselves. The, the Golden Horde set on the, the other main branch, uh, and the Islamic and the non-Islamic Mongols fought it out, and the Golden Horde sort of eventually won. But by that point, much of their power was destroyed. Um, they got sucked into China. Um, and then about 1500, again, this huge break, it's a 300-year break. Another, but, but this one was really a break. This wasn't a fake veneer of some ruler in there, followed by, you know, slow assimilation. This was vast destruction. Again, we lost much of the literature. But here comes the Safavid dynasty. 
uh, hugely important. This is the reemergence of modern Iran. The boundaries of modern Iran were basically set uh, by the Abbasids, and then the Safavids locked it down. What, what, what is Iran today is basically what the Safavid dynasty was dealing with when they come to power uh, in about 1500. Um, the great thing about this period is we have all kinds of knowledge of it because we had ambassadors there. This is, if you've heard the saying, Isfahan is half the world. This was the view that the Safavid dynasty uh, sets themselves up in Isfahan and builds what many still believe to be one of the most beautiful cities ever built. Miles of gardens um, interconnected with running streams, water. You can go online and look at even the remnants of what's left today are still uh, spectacularly beautiful. Um, importantly, the Safavids were put in power by the Sufis. Ismail, the first Safavid ruler, was in fact the head of a Sufi clan. He was essentially a Sufi religious person. So not surprisingly, the Safavid dynasty sees this upwelling of the influence of Sufism, of, of, of the patronage of the arts that had been traditional with Persia, again, for, at this point, 3,000 years. They built Persian gardens, beautiful, spectacular Persian gardens. Illustrated books. Oh, by this one I should mention. In the Persian illustrated book history, which is unbelievably beautiful, um, they actually showed Muhammad unveiled in many instances, which is, of course, a direct violation, but it was within keeping of the way that the Persians did their art. And so many of these ancient books have this face of Muhammad scratched out. Sometimes they would just put a veil over his face in the, in, in the illustrations. If anybody's read Amud Pamuk's book, uh, My Name is Red, he won the Nobel Prize recently, this tension is precisely what he's writing about. Can you illustrate things? You're not supposed to, but oh, we love it. The Persian tradition says yes, the Islamic tradition says no. And people are being killed, and there's all this tension about that. Again, this continues to today. So the Safavid dynasty rises back up. Persian becomes a dominant cultural language again. If you look at the entire geographical area of the Middle East, where Islam spread under the Umayyads and the Sassanids, Sasanians, only one region has maintained their native language. That's Iran. People always, if you re watch our news, listen to our uh, political people, read the newspaper, which I never suggest, um, they refer to Arab, Islam, and Muslim as if these are the same exact thing. The, the Iranians are not Arab. Some of them are. They do not consider themselves Arab. They consider themselves Persian. Because if you're Persian, you have this history right where you are that goes back, at this point, you know, three, four, five thousand years. And they believe in it. And they believe in it because they have works like Produces, Shahnameh, that, that demonstrate the greatness of it. They have the ruins. They have what they build today. So this influence of Persian history and Persian tradition, and most importantly, the Persian language, is right up till today. Reestablished by the Safavids. Now, if, if you, another way to think about this, too, is, again, the, a, a thousand years ago, when Produces is writing... Is roughly when Beowulf was written, give or take a few years. If anybody's ever tried to read Beowulf, you will realize how how far we have moved from that. 
The Shahnameh is perfectly readable to any literate Persian today. Any Iranian, anybody who's literate in Persian, but probably any Iranian with most Persians. It's not a problem. Easier than Shakespeare. It's closer to modern Persian than it is, than Shakespeare is to modern English. It is the standard of poetry. It is how you want to write, and you want to write poetry. So this has not gone away. This has not faded. And in fact, New Persian is not all that different from Middle Persian. This language actually really runs back for about 15 or 1600 years, the continuously unbroken river of influence. So I was trying to think about how to bring this up to today, and I thought of two examples. One, of course, is, is, is our, you know, sort of victorious exit from Iraq, uh, <laughs> which turned out to be like the exit of just about everybody else from Iraq in this region, which was we went, we conquered, things didn't go the way we had hoped, and so we left, having changed more or less not a lot. Uh, you know, this, this, is, this is, you know, it's different, but mm, not the way we had hoped because we found out that there's all these forces, all these factions, all these historical influences that we did not understand at work. Um, second one that occurred to me is, is, is our soon-to-be glorious exit from Afghanistan, uh, where similarly we've achieved probably less. Um, I don't know if we've changed anything, really. I mean, it would be interesting to see if we have. Um, and it's going to end up looking more or less like it did, which is bunch of warlord factions fighting it out amongst themselves, uh, primarily along tribal lines, and those tribal lines are exactly the same tribal lines you can read about 2,000 years earlier in Persian history. So not new problems, these are the same peoples and the same situations and the same communal ideas working themselves out. It's quite amazing. Uh, and finally, on a literary front, I thought this was fascinating. Um, I don't know if anybody... Uh, knows who uh, Saeed Hossein Nasser is. He's, if, you, if you watch a lot of news programming, which I don't recommend, he's often consulted as a sort of Arab-Persian Iranian expert. Uh, he is an Iranian University Professor of Islamic Studies at George Washington University, prominent Islamic philosopher, is the author of many scholarly books and articles. He's a Muslim-Persian philosopher, renowned scholar of comparative religion, uh, Gifford Lectures, very uh, uh, you know, famous lecture series. Professor Nasser speaks and writes based on doctrines and viewpoints of the perennial philosophy on subjects of religion, spirituality, music, etc. And he has a book called The Garden of Truth. It's just out recently on Sufism. Um, and in The Garden of Truth, uh, he says, which of course the name is directly taken from The Walled Garden of Truth, um, which we read a selection from earlier. Quote, the Quran asserts majestically, verily we from God uh, to his own returning. The one is, of course, Allah. It is no accident that the, the, the standard law of Islam is called Sharia, the road. This entire book, written in English for English-speaking audience, is designed to tell us that Sufism equals the Quran. The path equals Sharia law. This is what Sufism means. Even with the brief snippets I've given you, you should see this is not true in any way, shape, or form. But don't believe me. Please feel read, go read some Sufi works. You'll realize very quickly this is just absolutely absurd. But it raises the question of why. why? Uh, yes, he was influenced by this. Yeah. So, so why a thousand 
years later. Why today in the Islamic Republic of Iran, but in fact in the United States, an English-speaking Iranian professor writing for an English audience would want to tell us that Sufism equals Islam. Because the tension is still there. Persian does not equal Islam, does not equal Arab, does not equal Zoroastrianism. There are all these tensions in Iran today, in the Persian Empire. And it's the same tensions that have been going on and on and on for several thousand years. And they haven't been solved yet. You may know that one of the big power struggles in Iran today is between the political leaders, Ahmadinejad, supported by the military, and the religious councils, by the elected council of elders. Uh, by the way, this is a structure of religion uh, and governance brought to you by Zoroastrianism. Um, this is not originally an Islamic idea who, who believed in the caliphate, which was a single ruler who embodied both political and religious authority. That's a caliphate. No, no. This, this notion of having a council of the wise who guide you, but is separated from the, the, uh, the, the political power this comes to us from the Zoroastrian doops, the priests of the Zoroastrian movement, who worked on a long time to convince the, of course, uh, ancient leaders of Persia that they should do this. These tensions are still there. They're still real. They're still a huge problem. They still badger the Zoroastrians. There's almost no Zoroastrians left in Iran, but they still badger them. Uh, they just burnt down one of these poets' homeland. I can't remember his name. I forgot to look it up. Uh, one of his shrines to where he was born because they decided, oh, you're a blasphemer. 600 years later, he's a blasphemer. We've got to stomp that out. And so we're, 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 it would be interesting to see is where I want to finish up, where this goes. The evidence suggests that the attempt in Iran today to have this very theocratic, heavy-handed, restricted government that says you can't do these beautiful paintings, you can't write this beautiful literature, you can't uh, display beautiful clothes. By the way, this is a huge imposition, particularly on Iranian women. Um, that You can't dress beautifully, you can't have gems, you have beautiful houses. It's a, a, a struggle. If anybody knows anything about what goes on in Iran, that one of the things they come, they don't like to let women out without uh, being covered. They're not real full burqas, although many women do that. But they say, if you want to see beautiful women, go into Iranian private homes, and they're dumb. I mean, there's huge imports of all the big brand fashions into Iran. They're beautiful, they're dumb, because this is the tradition. You dress well. Uh, people have seen pictures of Ahmadinejad, uh, the, the president, current president of Iran. I always say he's the best dressed uh, sort of nut job dictator in the world. <laughs> I mean, those are some fine suits that guy wears. I mean, he, they're beautiful. Notice. This is the Persian tradition. You, you show up turned out, you show up looking good. And notice this conflict, this conflict is there. And it's not going to be resolved today, it's not going to be resolved tomorrow. But it will be interesting to see how, how long the, the lid can be held on. When the Ayatollah Khomeini came in, he was supported by the Zoroastrians. He was supported by all kinds of, the Sufis thought he was great because they weren't so hot on the Shah anymore for various reasons, many of them quite good. But it didn't take them too long to realize, ooh, maybe they had backed the wrong horse in this Khomeini guy. And he looked a little more fundamentalist than they had hoped he would. But this, that, that tension continues. How far can they push the freedoms? 
How far can they allow the native Persian culture to reassert itself? Isfahan is, is perennially sort of, they begin to restore it and they say, no, 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 let's tear it down. And they'll we'll restore this, no, 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 we'll tear it down. And we'll just let that fall down and we'll ignore it. And they can't, they can't quite decide. Because on one hand, it's a beautiful, unbelievable world heritage site. On the other hand, it's a threat. And so today, in the main Persian-speaking areas of the world, you have the tensions that were at work from three, 4,000 years ago. You have a culture that's beautifully articulate, capable of incredible architecture, but diverse, voluble, literate. The producers of one of the great literary corpuses the world has ever known, that we know far too little of because we associate it with these you know, crazy guys out in the desert. Nothing could be more incorrect than that. They were not in the desert and they weren't crazy. Well, maybe they're crazy, but they weren't so much in the desert. Filled with humor and love and beauty. Uh, when, when Goethe read, read these uh, early translations, it was about 79 when the Germans began translating a lot of the Persian literature. And this is still a German project, by the way. If you can read German, you have access to a lot more than I think any other non you know, Persian language. Um, he said, this is so beautiful, I'm going to learn Persian. By 82, he knew Persian. He was translating his own Persian works. That, that ladies and gentlemen, is, is an incredibly powerful linguistic and cultural history and is, I think, the Persian language and literature. Thank you very much.